This represents a landmark moment in terms of not only the use of geospatial data from satellites and other Earth orbital sensors, but also open source intelligence and the fusion of that OSINT and geospatial information together into a common evidentiary product that is being uh, collected with the support of the United States government and to support uh, Ukrainian institutions, but also in big neon lights around this, um, international institutions, in particular the International uh, Criminal Court and other tribunals. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, and welcome to The Downlink. This coming week, Boeing's Starliner capsule, which is intended for human spaceflight, should return from its first-ever uncrewed trip to the International Space Station, if all goes according to plan. What has been dependable are the glitches, like serious software and mechanical problems. They've dogged the Starliner's development, and this is the third attempt since 2019. And even in this week's test, after launch and separation from the Atlas V rocket, on orbital insertion, two of the capsule's thrusters failed. It's docked at the ISS now. If the Starliner capsule makes it through this test, it will be one step closer to being put into service and ferrying astronauts to the space station. So you can see why the space community is focusing on the Starliner's progress. But something else monumental happened a few days ago. The U.S. State Department quietly stood up an organization that's going to, quote, capture, analyze, and make widely available evidence of Russia-perpetrated war crimes and other atrocities in Ukraine. It's called the Conflict Observatory. The intent is to collect and analyze and preserve evidence for civil and criminal prosecutions that are likely to come out of Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. The observatory is going to fuse commercially available satellite imagery with open source data relating to war crimes primarily collected from social media. It's a first for any government. It's bringing together commercial space operators with software developers and artificial intelligence experts and the Smithsonian Institution and my guest, Nathaniel Raymond, who is a human security expert and war crimes investigator from Yale University's Humanitarian Research Lab. Before he explains how the Conflict Observatory is going to work, we're going to hear from Steve Wood. He's the Senior Director of Maxar Technologies News Bureau, which is the source of most of the satellite imagery on Russia's invasion of Ukraine that you're seeing in the media. And Maxar's imagery is going to play a big role in the Conflict Observatory. Steve is also a former U.S. government geospatial intelligence analyst. Here's our discussion. Hi, Steve. Thank you for making the time to come on the downlink. Hi, Laura. It's definitely my pleasure. Steve, you and Maxar have been in the press every day for at least the past two months, starting with images of Russia's troop buildup on Ukraine's northern and eastern borders and on that country's southern coastline. Maxar is at least as close to a household name as any satellite company is. But I doubt that most people really know what Maxar is as a company. 
Could you take a moment and give us the elevator pitch to explain the space assets, the variety of services, and the breadth of your organizations um, that Maxar can call its customers? Sure, I would be happy to do that. You know, I, I think people often will find a lot of attention, will draw a lot of attention to the fact that we have these very impressive things called satellites that are imaging around the world. But you said it right. We're, we're actually quite a bit larger and more complicated than just being a satellite imagery company. We like to think of ourselves and brand ourselves as a space technology and an earth intelligence company. We're roughly 4,500 people, maybe about 4,400 now. We're scattered around different locations around both the country as well as the globe. And really, we're all about taking the power of space, turning it into products and services to be able to service customers all around the world. Uh, we do things from literally building and having satellites go up in space to what you've seen most visibly since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Taking some of these organic assets that we control, we own and operate these satellites, and then to be able to take the imagery, the information, and turn it into something that our customers can use in areas that are usually too dangerous, too remote, um, frankly, too expensive to get to. That's part of what the power of what we can do from space. You know, while your company is fascinating, in all that it does, your story, in a way, also tracks with how satellite imagery is being gathered, analyzed, distributed, and used today, especially in Ukraine. You started in the intelligence community, didn't you? I did. Was, was that where you started working with imagery and analysis? It actually is, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a product of the old Cold War, if you will. And how did you first get involved in providing satellite imagery to document atrocities? Uh, I heard you also worked with George Clooney. Yeah, I, I just wanted to go back for a brief second. Um, when I was started back in you know the early 90s and actually in the late 80s, back in the U.S. intelligence community of the Washington, D.C. area, satellite imagery was something that really was only in the hands of the government. There wasn't a thing called high-resolution commercial satellite imagery. It just was not available. And quite frankly, if I think back to those days and juxtapose it to where we are today, to be able to talk about the imagery, to be able to share it with you, to be able to you know, see this on the nightly news, I never would have thought that was possible because that information back then was all classified. And, and really that's been part of the power of what we have been able to do at Maxar and the roots of what we've been doing for decades now in monitoring, unfortunately, some pretty nasty events that have happened around the world whether it was in the middle of Africa and Darfur, whether it was in areas of the Middle East and Syria, or recently in places like Myanmar with the Rohingya. Part of what the whole premise of commercial satellite imagery and our company more specifically has been about is to take this kind of high resolution imagery that is unclassified, that can be shared, that can be used to help visually document what's happening in the world. So that, that's really been part of the outgrowth and the kind of the evolution from a satellite perspective to where we are today. And I've been personally involved in that really for my whole career, albeit on two different sides, one from the government and now much more, of course, on the, the commercial side. And you've got to answer the question. I mean, didn't you also work with that famous Hollywood actor? George Clooney, as a matter of fact, we did. Yeah, it, that was another very interesting chapter. Um, I, I looked back at it just the other day. It's been already 12 years which to me seems like a lifetime ago. And, you know, I think about some of the differences of where we were back then 
and how we were pioneering this new capability of using unclassified high-resolution imagery for something that was quite, um, quite visible from space. And in, it, of course, had the George Clooney effect to it. There was a lot of time, a lot of attention. There was a lot of the, the paparazzi ideas that were floating around about this, but, but really for a good reason. George Clooney brought attention to something that largely had not been widely understood, widely tracked. Him and John Prendergast together brought awareness. And, and that was a really interesting, and I feel still, you know, a decade later plus, it was an important way to show the power and the utility of using satellite imagery, remote sensing, people with expertise, and to bring it all together to help visually tell the story and expose what was happening. Can you take a moment and explain, you know, the Satellite Sentinel project and, you know, what happened to it? Sure. The, the real origins are kind of interesting, too. George Clooney, um, again, this is about the 2010 timeframe, if I recall correctly. He had this idea that, you know, the paparazzi literally were following him everywhere. You know, one of the most notable people and celebrities clearly during that timeframe and arguably even still today. And he came up with this idea as he had taken a trip into Africa and was witnessing and talking to people firsthand about some of the atrocities that had been happening in the Darfur region and in Sudan, you know, writ large. He had this idea of, wait a minute, if the paparazzi can follow me everywhere I go, how about we turn the tables a little bit on these warlords in Africa that are doing some pretty horrendous things and are truly involved in genocide in the region? And his idea was, was radical. How about we, George Clooney and his team, contract with companies that own satellites and turn that paparazzi type of idea back on, on the warlords from space? And that was literally the, the genesis to it. Um, series of conversations, series of different planning meetings. We came together with the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative up in Harvard. We brought together time and expertise from our company, then called Digital Globe, which is now part of Maxar. We brought all that together and started. We had a lot of experimentation, a lot of trying to figure out how do we best monitor something like this in an area that really a lot of people didn't have a lot of experience in from a remote sensing or an analytic perspective in the non-governmental world. And that was really part of how we began is a lot of, a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of imagery to then figure out how do we get the information out and explain to people and document visually what was happening. And what happened to the project? Well, it, it went on for several years. Um, I think probably about two to three years, if I recall correctly, towards the end of the campaign. We had a series of weekly reports, monthly reports, pretty frequent cadence, a lot of briefings that were going on, um, a, a pretty decent amount of publicity that was happening, and the news media picking up some of the more notable activity. But ultimately, I think towards the end of that campaign, two to three years, George Clooney and the founders of what was called the Enough Project, the real sponsors behind this Satellite Sentinel project, decided to start going in a slightly different direction. They ultimately decided to start following the money, the money trail of the money laundering of the whole, the whole activity that would fund these warlords. That's not something you can very easily track from space, from a satellite imagery perspective. And so as the military campaign that we were really focusing it on, and some of the Unfortunately, some of the war crimes and the atrocities, those are things that are visible from space. As that began to shift, so did the focus of the company and ultimately the project, I should say. 
So what's different now? I mean, this kind of imagery was commercially possible, perhaps even available for other recent conflicts, as well as state-sponsored crimes against humanity. You know, but but something has definitely changed with this uh, Russian invasion and war in Ukraine. What is it? Yeah, I, I think it's a multitude of things. So you're right. We did have some of the technology available back in the early genesis of the Satellite Sentinel Project. When I look at what's different now, technology for sure. So for one, we have more satellites. Our own company has more satellites. They're more capable they provide better resolution or detail. You can see things on the ground and in the air um, better than we ever could before. And that does make a difference to understand, to interpret what's happening. The speed at which we can do things now is dramatically different. So back in 2010, you know, we prided ourselves on getting the imagery ingested, understood, sent out, analyzed, all of that quickly. But where we are today with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we're doing this oftentimes in a matter of minutes. We're bringing in the data faster because of the te technology improvements. We bring in more people. We have more core expertise to know how to interpret the data. But one of the other things that I have really seen as a fundamental difference, especially if we look and compare and contrast Russia, Ukraine to what we were looking at in, in Sudan, is the abundance of social data so we are now fusing in things like TikTok videos. Um, right before the invasion in, into Ukraine itself, I'm sure you and your, your listeners heard and saw many, many different sources of data or saw that you know, on Twitter where you could see handheld videos showing equipment moving to the border. That's very, very valuable to use. And then when you fuse it from an overhead perspective with satellites, you can verify it, you can corroborate it, you can get additional information that shows you other places to look. So, you know, big picture, this has exploded with the amount of data that is now available that is unclassified in 2022 compared to where we were in 2010. Now that we've got the context, walk us through what happened in Bucha. When did you and your team first start? You know, how did Maxar choose that location as one that needed monitoring? What resources were dedicated? So we've been imaging a large portion of Ukraine for, for weeks, months, and in some cases, the border areas, even dating back as, as early as last April, when we started seeing the tensions beginning to occur between Russia and Ukraine. But let me focus back in on Bucha, in particular, in the Kiev area. So as, as has been pretty widely reported, as the Russians begin to pull out of the northern Kiev area, and this is fairly recent, in the past several weeks, as the Russian forces began to pull out of that area, the news media, journalists, investigative reporters, people, and uh, non-governmental organizations began to move into the area. And what they began seeing and documenting were some pretty uh, horrendous things, human rights, truly human rights violations and atrocities. So that video, and there was one specific video that I can visually, vividly remember, was, was filmed shortly after the Russians had left this area of Bucha. And what it showed were bodies lying in, in the streets. Now, again, you go to go back, we've been imaging these areas for weeks. We've been documenting for a wide variety of different customers and purposes, activity that we were seeing in and around Kiev. But we couldn't see and detect everything without having additional sources of information. And so ultimately what happened is on, I think it was probably about April 4th, if I recall my dates correctly, I got a phone call 
from one of our colleagues at the New York Times. And the New York Times had gotten that same video that I just referred to, that I believe was first shown on Facebook, that were showing the bodies in the streets in Bucha. My colleague, uh, his name is Maliki Brown at the New York Times, he called me up and said, I need you to take a look at something. We're starting to see these reports and these videos that show this activity in Bucha. Can you check back with your satellite images and see if there's any correlation? Can we verify that this is legitimate? Is it true? We think it is, but what can you tell us from space? So it wasn't something we had initially discovered or identified as the events were unfolding you know, a couple of weeks before. We'd been looking in the more macro picture, watching Russian forces moving in and around Kiev, looking at the activities in the, the horrendous shelling going on in Mariupol down in the southern part of the, the country. But it was really that, that uncovering the additional pieces of information that really led us to focus in on Bucha. And so over the next, really that next night uh, on April 4th, we began a series of really investigative type of forensic viewing. And I, I really kind of like that, that view or that term. Our founder, Dr. Walter Scott, has actually called it kind of like a CSI from space. And that, I think that's an apropos way to describe it because we're, we're really taking a forensic approach to it and looking at, in, our, in this case of Bucha, the videos that were shot on the street, the same time frame we're going back and looking through all of our images of that same area on our satellite images. We began looking at things like, where is the vehicle on the video? Can I see that video on our satellite image? Where is the body, in this case, in Bucha? And do I see anything that looks like a body in that same position? And so we, it's a kind of an exhaustive approach, but it's the kind of level of detail that you have to go through. And I, I must say, it's often very, very difficult to identify a single body or something of that level. In this case, the contrast between the body and the road stood out, but it was really that collaboration between ourselves, the New York Times, and, and then that video. That was the, the sealing part of it all, is to bring that all together. It's that kind of correlation that is absolutely essential when you're doing imagery analysis and interpretation. The sheer horror was really only uncovered in Bucha about 10 days ago. But Maxar was already monitoring that Kiev suburb in what seems to be like well more than a month. And that's time, that's work hours, that's expensive satellites. Has it paid off? What do you think has been the impact? Yeah, I mean, so a couple of things. First of all, you know, we, we image large areas of the world every single day. In the case of Ukraine and the case in the, to really drill down a little bit closer, we were indeed focused in and around the area of Kiev for very obvious reasons. The capital of the country, where there was a lot of a shelling and a lot of military activity, a strategically important area to watch. So we had a lot of our customers and a lot of the clients that we deal with, as well as our own, our own people who wanted to be able to help monitor and start building up this visual record of the area. So it's a complicated question to try and answer the cost and the, and the true resource load that it took, because that's something we do every single day. You know, today, for example, we're imaging a lot of the areas on the eastern part of Ukraine, because that's where a lot of the attention has now shifted as forces have moved out of that region. But ultimately, it was having that visual record that we know we can always go back and look more closely at later. It, it is something that is core to our business, is to have this visual record of the world. And I, I like to kind of describe it as a bit of a time machine. Unfortunately, we can only go in one direction. We can only go back in time. But to have that visual digital record of a large amount of area, very high quality, 
in a case like Buja proves itself to be invaluable because now we've got that record. We can go back and look and see what happened. We're not omniscient. We don't know everything that's happening at all times, nor do our customers. But what we do have is that record. And so as our visual you know, imagery archive continues to grow every single day, that becomes that critical piece where we can now compare and contrast and see what's different, or in some cases, uncover what has already happened. So that's that's the way I look at, the, the, in this case, with Bucha. And unfortunately, there's probably, probably going to be other places like this. They just haven't surfaced yet. But that record is going to be critical. And, and that's a big part of why we do what we do. How do you want your team's work to be used? Is Maxar working with the International Criminal Court or the U.S. Department of State, others? Could this work be a template for future conflicts in, in terms of, of how to monitor them and, and how this uh, forensic data is used? For me, I, where do I want to see this go? Um, ultimately, I, w- I want people to understand the value of what commercial remote sensing in this industry can do and is showing today. I want people to increasingly understand how to use it more effectively from a time perspective, from a research perspective. But, but I think we're, we're part of the way there already. The amount of attention, the amount of awareness that people have had about what's happening in Russia and Ukraine, I think in large part has been enabled because of this openness and the transparency and the, our ability to be a small part of combating disinformation, where we see all kinds of different efforts by different entities, state actors, non-state actors, to try and say, this isn't even happening. This is all fake. Well, guess what? we've got some pretty compelling visual evidence to say that's not true. And it is indeed occurring. That's super important to me. That's something that I know our company stands behind. For me, that is very important ethically and morally to be doing. So I feel like we're we're part of the way there. We still have ways to go. Ultimately, I want to see this imagery continue to be a visual record. Um, We do work very closely with the U.S. government, which in turn then works with many other entities, whether it's the United Nations, whether it's with other non-governmental organizations, whether it's academicians, whether it's researchers who are trying to uncover, frankly, like yourself, what happened? What's happening now? How do we play a part of that? How does this industry writ large play a part of that? That's what I think is most important. And and again, I'm I'm heartened to see the the progress we've made over the years. Um, We're not done yet. We're building a new constellation of satellites literally right now. We'll be starting to launch very soon. That brings more capabilities. It might bring some additional challenges just as we have more and more data to come out. You know, how do you manage and handle all of that most effectively during a crisis situation like this? So I think it's just part of the industry evolution ultimately, but uh, I'm pleased and encouraged to see the evolution and, and how we've come. We feel compelled to do what we can to help visually explain what's happening in this part of the world. Steve, thank you so much for your time. That was fascinating. You're most welcome, Laura. Thank you. And now we're going to hear from Nathaniel Raymond, who is not only instrumental in standing up the conflict observatory with the State Department, but he was the director of operations for George Clooney's Satellite Sentinel project. Welcome to the downlink, Nathaniel. It's a real pleasure to be here, Laura. Thanks for having me. Before we get into this week's news, let's take a moment and briefly introduce yourself, you know, what you do and what you're working on. Uh, I'm Nathaniel Raymond. I'm a lecturer in epidemiology uh, of microbial disease 
at the Yale School of Public Health and Executive Director of the Humanitarian Research Lab uh, at Yale School of Public Health. And I was formerly a lecturer at the Jackson Institute uh, of Global Affairs at Yale. And before that, I was uh, founding director of the Signal Program on Human Security and Technology at the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative, the Harvard School of Public Health, and uh, was director of operations for Satellite Sentinel Project uh, with uh, George Clooney from 2010 to 2012. And I've been a war crimes investigator and humanitarian aid worker for approximately 23 years, serving overseas in South Sudan, Afghanistan, the Middle East, Sri Lanka, Ethiopia, and elsewhere. And what are you working on now? What I'm working on now is uh, my colleagues and I at the uh, Humanitarian Research Lab are part of the uh, State Department Conflict Observatory in partnership, uh, which we'll get to in a second, with several other organizations. And I'm also uh, basically researching the uh, way in which satellite imagery and other forms of uh, remotely sensed data and mobility data can help improve the human security of vulnerable populations and ways in which to reduce the potential threats from information communication technologies and new technologies that they may have to those same vulnerable populations, often in conflicts. Now, you mentioned just now the observatory, and it was this week that the Department of State made an announcement that it was launching a new organization that it's calling the Conflict Observatory. What is it, and why was it created? Uh, the Conflict Observatory was created with one primary mission, which is to capture and preserve and make available to uh, domestic tribunals in Ukraine and international tribunals such as the International Criminal Court, evidence of mass atrocities, uh, war crimes, and other gross violations by Russia-aligned forces uh, as part of this uh, war of choice by Russia in Ukraine. And this represents a landmark moment in terms of not only the use of geospatial data from satellites and other Earth orbital sensors, but also open source intelligence and the fusion of that OSINT and geospatial information together into a common evidentiary product that is being uh, collected with the support of the United States government and to support uh, Ukrainian institutions, but also in big neon lights around this, um, international institutions, in particular the International uh, Criminal Court and other tribunals, which is a, uh, a major moment in the, the political and technical and operational evolution of the mainstreaming of these technologies into accountability processes. Well, how did this monumental moment come about? Who's involved? It's the State Department, it's Yale University's Humanitarian Research Lab. Who else and how do they all fit in? Uh, ESRI, the Environmental Systems Research Institute, is uh, building the main platform that's going to house and support the conflict observatory. Uh, the Smithsonian Cultural Rescue Initiative is involved uh, documenting uh, damage, looting, um, and other forms of destruction to Ukraine's cultural heritage. Uh, Planetscape, a, uh, a private company that does uh, large-scale damage and change analysis for human rights purposes, is also involved. 
and there will uh, likely be more partners to come. But the initiative was spearheaded by State Department CSO, Conflict Stabilization Operations Bureau, uh, and uh, the Assistant Secretary and her team. From the announcement, I understand that the observatory will analyze and preserve publicly and commercially accessible information, and specifically satellite imagery and social media content, and that this will all be done with the intent to make evidence of war crimes available to institutions such as the International Criminal Court. And I'm guessing this evidence will also be available to nation states such as Ukraine and possibly others in the future. Walk us through how does this actually work from the satellite operator to the courtroom? Well, I, we have a uh, specific example already of ha- how it's working. If you uh, uh, you can go online and see the uh, summary with imagery of the report that um, my colleagues and I at Yale produced uh, at the uh, request of the State Department for the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, OSCE's Moscow Mechanism report, which came out um, in April, just a few weeks ago. Um, That provides a really good example of of how this process with the observatory is going to work. Commercially uh, available satellite imagery is uh, captured in, in the case of the Moscow Mechanism report by Maxar. Other companies will be involved as well. And we access that imagery on, on the Yale side uh, against specific requirements that in the case of Moscow Mechanism, we were looking at damage to hospitals. And so in that case, we developed uh, a rubric for assessing damage and for identifying uh, what constitutes a health facility in uh, that report in five regional areas, um, such as Kharkiv and Mariupol and Kiev, and we began to look at what fancy term, um, basically, um, temporal spatial differentiation, meaning how does the time in, in, in place information between what's available on the internet and what we see in the image begin to create what we call a mosaic effect as the pieces come together. Um, our analysis team, working with other partners in the observatory, begin to get a sense of how the different streams of evidence can fuse together to corroborate or to refute allegations uh, about a specific incident. They can also identify incidents uh, through that process that we may not even have allegations about. Uh, Often we are um, seeing damage or seeing phenomena that hasn't even been reported yet. And we're looking in the case of the hospital reports, a really good example of the two things that you can get from this type of remote investigation is you can see individual instances, such as the destruction of a specific hospital. And we documented approximately about 22 hospitals that had suffered uh, some form of, of damage that was visible in both satellite imagery and in open source information. Um, but we can also see trends. And in the case of the hospital report, we're seeing a trend of at least indiscriminate and potentially in some cases, uh, possible intentional targeting of health facilities. And so what's really powerful here and that the hospital, um, the health facility report demonstrates is that we're seeing both micro incidents and information that can corroborate allegations about them, but we're also seeing trends. You know, there will be some people who say, 
why don't we just use eyewitness accounts or rely on investigators and other forensics experts on the ground? What does satellite imagery bring to an investigation and eventually a courtroom that's unique? Uh, It brings so much richness that elevates, augments, supports eyewitness testimony. And I can talk about this in in a little bit when we get to the work my colleagues and I uh, did in Sudan several years ago. Um, Because you're using satellite imagery and because you're using open source methods, it doesn't mean you're not using eyewitness testimony. Um, In some cases, you're directly using eyewitness testimony or the products you build are used in addition and complement to eyewitness testimony. And, And why these geospatial and open source fused products are so important is that they provide time stamped and um, scientifically reproducible corroboration to eyewitnesses. And they also um, allow a variety of methods to um, determine the validity and veracity of eyewitness testimony. That These methods make eyewitness testimony in a court setting stronger um, when they are present. And they allow us to provide information, especially when it is done with chain of custody, and with a focus on admissibility, provide information that actually allows witnesses uh, to have more impact in the courtroom. Doesn't this also allow for observation, like really in real time? I mean, these are non-permissive environments. These are places where, you know, humanitarian workers or investigators really wouldn't be there at the time when, when these acts or crimes happen. Exactly. Uh, The fact is, is that satellites can go where at this stage in a conflict, in the case of Ukraine and and particularly in the east, where monitors can't be on the ground, whether they are with a multilateral organization, with a government, with um, NGOs. And so really satellites have utility across three types of scenarios you have in in conflict settings with non-permissive environments. One is when large-scale populations have left an area and have moved into border areas, they help with basically reconnaissance to identify where people in need might be over large areas. In permissive environments and non-permissive environments, you can see displacement. Um, Second, in areas where there's conflict with some access, they provide corroboration to reports from the ground. Third sort of scenario box is in areas with low to no access, they sometimes provide the only information that we are able to obtain in highly non-permissive environments and thinking about recent urban fighting in terms of Mariupol, et cetera. um, Satellite imagery is essential in those types of settings. We've seen this in Syria, et cetera, uh, where it can sometimes provide otherwise entirely unavailable information. This isn't your first time working with satellites and war crimes. And in fact, using satellite imagery to prosecute war crimes isn't even that new. Satellite imagery was used in the Srebrenica trials at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. 
And just to refresh everyone else's memory here, in July 1995, Rako Mladic led Bosnian Serbs in massacring more than 8,000 Bosniak men and boys in the Srebrenica enclave. Now, 22 years later, in 2017, Mladic was convicted of 10 counts of genocide and war crimes against humanity, and he's serving a life sentence in The Hague. At the time that Mladic was mounting his defense in court, You were the director of operations for George Clooney's Satellite Sentinel project. What was that project? That project was uh, initiated by George Clooney's foundation, Not In Our Watch, which also involved Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Don Cheadle in cooperation with the Enough Project. And I was brought in and and put a team together at the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative based on a a memo I had written in 2005 um, to Google Uh, about the role that multiple types of data, including satellite data, could play in responses to, uh, in that case, Katrina, uh, Hurricane Katrina. When I was in Mississippi, I was seeing how the information we had really was more available in white communities, and we had less information in African-American communities, which were disproportionately more affected by the storm. And so I began to think about what are ways we could create information equity in the case of Katrina? Um, George Clooney picked up on that with uh, experiences he had had uh, at the end of 2010, fall, winter 2010, in Sudan, traveling with John Prendergast and the Enough Project. And he was thinking about, okay, how in the non-permissive environment of certain regions in Sudan and the soon-to-be new country of South Sudan that was then uh, about to secede in 2011 from Sudan as part of the Naivasha Accords, he wanted to, what he called, create a um, human rights paparazzi. And so I developed a uh, operations team at Harvard Humanitarian Initiative to really execute that vision he had. And it became the largest, uh, up until I think the conflict observatory we are launching now, it became the largest civilian public-facing use of geospatial technology and imagery and in this open source fusion for human security and to try to detect, document, and deter attacks on civilians. And uh, we were involved on the Harvard side for uh, approximately 18 months in that project from December 2010 until the summer of 2012. And we documented some of the first, if not the first, active creation of mass graves, alleged mass graves, um, captured through commercial satellite imagery by with civilian analysis. And you mentioned Severnitsyn, and that was with SR-71 Blackbird, which, which played, as you mentioned, a critical role in the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia's deliberations. And what was also really important I think the most important thing coming out of uh, Satellite Sentinel is we were documenting invasions of uh, certain contested areas in near real time, which meant that we were, as much as technological innovation, engaged in ethical innovation about questions of early warning, about questions of of sharing that information publicly, and the um, intended and unintended consequences of sharing near real-time information about threats to civilians in conflict zones. So there was a lot of uh, hard lessons in that project. A lot of them were not technological 
And, uh, and so that inspired what we did after Sentinel. Could you explain what some of those hard lessons are? Yeah, I, I think the, the first one is going to sound kind of boring, but it's very, very important, is that in doing this type of work, you're fusing together multiple streams of information. And, and what we found is that it's one thing to see something in an image. It's another thing to see it in open source data. The real technical challenge and challenge for admissibility in a court setting is how you bring those streams together in a way that's consistent and in a way that's documented, where you have version control, which is the heart of chain of custody on these little analytic decisions you're doing that together in aggregate um, determine the quality of the evidence. And so we thought we were doing imagery analysis, but really we were doing large-scale data management in terms of building a log uh, to be able to show our work. And, and that was that was the first big lesson is that you think you're doing imagery analysis, but in fact, you're actually building a database. And the second big lesson is that you don't know how other actors in the environment are going to use this information. And they have uh, local information, decision calculus that you can't predict that and that you often are never going to know causally how your information interacts with that decision calculus from potentially good organizations um, and organizations that are trying to harm civilians. And so there were incidents where it appeared that our information could have contributed to decisions that were made that harmed individuals who were civilians. And so for us, we didn't, we were, we came into that project without there being a clear ethical standard and not just for satellite imagery, but really for the question of how do you use information in a humanitarian way that supports civilian protection and supports human rights? And what are the times that in a conflict setting and what are the times that you should, to use the words of the medical ethical principle, nola tangere, unhand them? let them go? When do you not have the authority to, to responsibly uh, attempt to inject information into a conflict space that could change human security dynamics? When should you walk away? And uh, in the summer of 2012, we decided to walk away from Satellite Sentinel because the ethical issues, and I've talked about this multiple times publicly, um, the ethical issues were um, unclear and extremely complicated. And so that's why we, we stopped in 2012 and formed the Signal Program on Human Security and Technology at the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative to specifically study these ethical and technical questions. That was a long answer. It was a fascinating answer. So then that leads one to wonder, you know, why is the conflict observatory different? I, I think the conflict observatory is very different because we are uh, starting from a from having had these experiences and developed specific technical peer-reviewed standards for how to do this work. And we have developed ethical guidelines. Uh, in the case of the Signal program, we developed both the, the Signal Code Volume 1, which is a human rights approach to information during crisis, and the Signal Code Volume 2, which is ethical obligations for practitioners. Um, we have, since the days of Satellite Sentinel, we have well over a decade of experience. And during that time, uh, we also have the Berkeley Protocol has come about, which is from the Berkeley Human Rights Center and Alexa Koenig and her team, uh, the beginning of 
standards for evidence collection uh, of digital evidence in support of accountability. Um, so we've had professionalization, and not only on the ethical side, we've had technical professionalization. Uh, my team, when we were at Harvard and, and now here at Yale, has produced a, a large amount of peer-reviewed and public literature and technical guides for how to do this work. Um, we are light years from where we were. And the most important thing we have now with the Conflict Observatory is a clear mission and mandate to collect information for accountability uh, and the support to be able to offer that information, uh, provide that information to courts and other tribunals with specific jurisdiction. And that that is can't be overstated in its importance. What's the future? What's the future for the observatory? And what's the future for the observatory, most specifically in Ukraine? Uh, the, well, the future for the observatory in Ukraine is we have just gotten started this week. So uh, watch this space. Uh, a, a trailer of coming attractions is the summary of the report. Uh, port we did for OSCE at the request of the State Department um, for uh, CSO, Conflict Stabilization Operations, on damage to healthcare facilities. You're going to see uh, products um, sooner rather than later that continue to document, explain, and explore the evidence of alleged gross crimes, uh, human rights uh, crimes, and violations of laws of war. Uh, by Russia aligned forces. And you're going to see clear methodological explanations of how we come to conclusions. Um, I think what is most exciting about the observatory is that it's going to provide a empirical basis for drawing conclusions about what has or has not happened in Ukraine. So obviously, uh, the hard work starts now, um, but you will be seeing a lot of products on a lot of different topics. I'm going to ask you a bit of a strange question, but one that is founded on past interactions uh, with the ICC. How will others say, right, well, this is an American government organization. It's American government funded, and it's in the United States. How will you be able to counteract an accusation or perhaps even a bias against information coming out of something that, that is being led by the United States government? That's a great question, and the answer is a pretty simple one and a short one. Um, by showing the receipts, so to speak, this the, the value of the observatory is that it is rooted in science. It is rooted in reproducible processes that use not opinions, but the demonstration of fact, and the demonstration of fact through forensic method. And so that's the sentence. Um, how will claims of, of bias, because this is a U.S. government-supported program, be countered? Well, they'll be countered decisively through the use of forensic methods to show how we drew our conclusions. Nathaniel, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, Laura, for uh, having me on. Thank you for putting up with my hands in the background. And thank you for uh, producing the show. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Meradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter. 
and thank you for listening.